You know, really, we can end with that. Let the church proclaim, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, let it be known. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. If you're doing your 100 days through the Bible reading plan with us, you know this last week, we were focused on the Easter story. Uh, But I don't want to preach on that today because I'm saving that for a special Sunday uh, here in a few weeks. Uh, So what we're going to do today is we're going to look forward. Uh, Tomorrow, if you're on this reading plan with us, you will be reading Acts chapter 2. And so that will be our focus today. Over the last three weeks, if you've been reading with us, you have read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I thought it would be helpful uh, just to look back for a moment at what we have read. Uh, The Bible gives us uh, an account of the life of Christ from four different perspectives. And and that's an interesting thing. That is a blessing from the Father, that we don't just have one account of the life of Christ, uh, but we have these four accounts, all written with a little different purpose and from a little different perspective, all four accounts exactly true, but together they give us a richer understanding of who Christ is and what his ministry is all about. And so if you've wondered why there are four Gospels and not just one, that's the reason why. Uh, The first Gospel is the Gospel of Matthew. Do you know who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew, okay? That's an easy one. You can remember that. Matthew was a disciple of Christ. Uh, He is the one who was the tax collector. In fact, he refers to himself in his own Gospel as the tax collector. And uh, he uh, wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. You can see that because of the great number of Old Testament references and quotations that he uses, even in how he refers to Jesus. He calls him the son of David, which is a title that would have had special meaning uh, to his Jewish audience. That's the Gospel of Matthew. The next gospel is the gospel of Mark. Now Mark, John Mark, although this is different from John, uh, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, who we'll speak of in a moment, uh, but John Mark is the human author of the book of Mark. Uh, Now Mark was not a disciple, but he records for us the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And so when you think about the gospel of Mark, you could call it sort of, kind of, Uh, the gospel of Peter. Mark was the human author, but it's the record of the eyewitness account from Peter. Uh, Now the next one is Luke. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, The last one is John. John too was a disciple of Christ. Uh, John uh, wrote uh, the gospel of John as an evangelistic gospel. In fact, if you look to the last couple of verses of the gospel of John, he writes this, These are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John was written to those people who have not yet come to know Christ. It's a different kind of gospel in another sense. The first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are written... Uh, from a chronological perspective. They start with the birth and end with the resurrection, and they walk through the life of Christ in a chronological way. John, while generally chronological, really organizes the life of Christ thematically. John shares with us seven miracles that Jesus performed, and he talks about how these seven miracles really prove the messiahship 
of Jesus Christ. Now, that brings us to the third gospel, the gospel of Luke. Who do you think wrote the gospel of Luke? Luke, okay? You've picked up on the pattern here. Now, Luke, we don't know much about him. Colossians chapter 4 tells us that he was a physician. He was a medical doctor. Uh, He was a frequent companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. But here's what you need to know about the gospel of Luke. It was likely a legal brief. It was part one of two parts of a legal brief that Luke prepared so that when Paul, the apostle Paul, stood trial in Rome for his faith, that they could explain to the court what it meant to be a Christian. And so Luke wrote two documents. One of those, the Gospel of Luke. The other one, the Act of the Apostles. And Luke is part one, and it takes uh, the life of Christ from the birth to the resurrection. And then the book of Acts, part two, picks up after the resurrection, talks of the ascension of Christ into heaven, and goes all the way up to the point that Paul was going to be tried for his faith before Caesar. In fact, if you look at the last couple of verses of the book of Acts, it says this, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house. Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so Luke wrote Luke and Acts as a two-part explanation of who Jesus is and really who Paul was as he goes from the, uh, from the birth to the resurrection and then from the ascension the creation of the church, the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem towards Spain, and then he stops, and these were submitted most likely uh, to the Roman courts. Now, what's interesting then, uh, and this is just some some Bible trivia, if you will, uh, Luke becomes the writer who has written the largest part of the New Testament. About 27% of the New Testament, if you count it by words, was written by Luke. It's either in the Gospel of Luke or it's in the Act of the Apostles. Uh, How about Paul? Well, Paul wrote about 5,000 words fewer than Luke wrote if you don't count the book of Hebrews. We don't really know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. If you throw that in under Paul's name, then Paul and Luke write about the same. John writes about 20% of the New Testament. So those three people, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, Paul, who wrote Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, all the epistles, or many of the epistles, and Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, together those three men were the human authors for 70% of the New Testament. Now, we we say all that because today we're going to focus in Acts chapter 2, and this is a key piece to this historical narrative that started with the birth of Christ and goes right on up through the spread of the church. In Acts chapter 2, God instituted the church. God created the church. You're going to read this tomorrow if if you're doing our Bible reading plan. The beginning of Acts chapter 2 says that the followers of Christ, few in number, but the followers of Christ were waiting for uh, the Holy Spirit to come. And so where they were all together, they were praying and they were waiting because Jesus had told them to do this before he ascended into heaven. And so in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes in very dramatic fashion. 
Now, the Holy Spirit had influenced people prior to that point, but that is the point at which the Holy Spirit began to indwell people. You know, as a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in me. He doesn't just influence me from the outside, but he's inside of me. He is inside of you. He convicts me of sin. He gives me guidance, helps me understand scripture. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is the teacher. When I stand and preach, what is taught to your hearts is done by the Holy Spirit who is within you. So we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That happens at the beginning of Acts chapter two. That's the beginning of the church, the official beginning. And then uh, Peter stands up and he preaches a message, long message, chapter two is a long chapter, and he preaches this message to uh, all who would listen. And 3,000 people uh, come to know the Lord right then. Can you imagine that? And then the last seven verses of Acts chapter two describe the church, what this first church looked like, what they were committed to. Uh, how they were ordered, how they were, how they were, they were arranged. It really gives us uh, the best picture we have of what the church should be. And so we're going to take some time this morning and just focus on that. Let's look at Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 41. It says, so those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3000 people were added to them. So the church has maybe 3,100 people in it right now. Uh, God has just given them a great harvest. Verse 42, and this is going to be our key verse for the message this morning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, before we go on to verse 43, I just want you to notice three of the most important words in verse 42 are words that we would be uh, likely to skip over if we were not careful. There are three articles, the word the, and they're very important in this verse. L look at it again. They devoted themselves not to just a general teaching of the apostles, but the teaching. There was a certain body of teaching. There was the gospel uh, that was being taught by the apostles, and that was where they were focused. And then it says, to the fellowship. Uh, the sentence would have made grammatical sense if the word the had been left out there. But this isn't just speaking of any kind of fellowship, but a peculiar, specific kind of fellowship that they enjoyed that we will talk about this morning. And to the breaking of bread, we'll, we'll learn what that means. But the article the limits and, and points to these special practices uh, that were true of the first church. Now, Beginning in verse 43, we're going to see how this standard of verse 42 plays itself out in the life of the church. Listen, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joy and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They made an impression even on the people outside the church. And as a result, it says, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Back to verse 42, that describes the church. 
It described the church then, and it describes what the church should be today. It talks about four commitments. It uh, talks about the purpose of those, and it talks about our devotion to those. This is a description of the church. Now, why is it important for us to spend time on this this morning? Well, it's important because the church, according to the Bible, is the body of Christ. Now, we throw that phrase around. If you've been around church very long, you've heard that, the body of Christ. I think sometimes, though, we fail to understand the significance of that. Christ accomplishes his work primarily through his body. How do I accomplish things that I want to accomplish? Through my body. If I want to pick this book up, my head tells my hands and my arms to pick up the book. If I want to move from here to there, my head tells my my legs and my feet to move me from here to there. Almost everything I accomplish, I accomplish through my body. How does God accomplish his work today? Sometimes we want to be so super spiritual that we think that things are primarily accomplished just through angelic powers and spiritual forces. You know, that we pray and God just sort of beams down an answer from heaven. God, with his, uh, with his angelic forces, rearranges circumstances, and, and God gives us wisdom from on high, and God uh, points us in a certain direction, and God overcomes obstacles for us, and we think that this is all some supernatural, m- mysterious thing that God does, and that's primarily how we relate to the Lord. Now, I'm not denying that God God does certainly work through angels, and God can cause anything to happen just by thinking it. He created the whole world. But primarily, listen, the way that God works today is through his church, the body of Christ. When God wants to give me wisdom, you know how God primarily does that? He puts wise people in my pathway that I can listen to. He does it through his church. If God wants to help people in our community who are struggling How does he want to help them? Through his church. If God wants to help you overcome depression, if God wants to help you have a better marriage, if God wants to help you, and he does, uh, raise godly children, he does that primarily through his church. I think sometimes we don't recognize the value of the church. We think of our Christian lives as, these, as this private experience that we have between us and God, and we can just sort of go off by ourselves, and we can commune with God, and God will give us wisdom supernaturally, and God will bless our marriage supernaturally, and God will bless our kids supernaturally, and God will do all of these things supernaturally when Christ is primarily wanting to work through his church. If you've got a problem, You know the solution, God's solution for you is probably found right here. It's probably found through the encouragement of the people around you, through the accountability with the people around you, through the prayers of the people around you, through the support of the people around you. If if you're trying to raise godly children, whatever you're doing, Christ wants to partner with you, but he does it through his body, the church. If, If we don't get the church right, both from a corporate perspective, how we do church, and we don't get church right from an individual perspective, how you do church, how I do church, then we're gonna miss out on much, if not most, of what Jesus wants to do in our lives. 
If you were separated from the church, wrongly connected with the church, or if the church is less than what it ought to be, then Christ will not accomplish in your life what he wants to. Is this important for us to know what the church should look like and how we should be connected to it? It is vitally important because the church is the body of Christ. The primary way I connect with Jesus is through the church. The primary way that Jesus blesses me is through the church. Through the church, we must get this right. So I want us to look back at verse 42 and I want us to see the answer to two questions there. Uh, and they're very similar sounding questions. The first is, how do we do the church? From an organizational perspective, what's most important? How do we do church? What is church? And then we're going to look at it, and this will be the focus of our message, how do I do church? How do you do church? How should you be connected to the church? So let's start with the bigger question, the broader question, how do we do church? And I want to give this to you. It's right there in verse 42. We're not making anything up, but I want to give this to you in a sentence. And so if you look in your outline, you'll see this sentence. I think we can show it to you on the screen, a sentence with a few blanks. This is a paraphrase of verse two, and it answers the question, how do we do church? And so let's walk through this. And I'll give you one blink at a time. We should be anchored to the Bible, to the Bible. Now, where did we get that? Well, verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to this body of work, this teaching that came from the apostles. We, as the church, should be anchored into God's word. But then it goes on. While... At the same time, while investing in healthy spiritual relationships. And so it says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That refers to healthy spiritual relationships. We'll see more of that in a moment. And this statement says, placing the highest value on worship uh, because in verse 42, it says the breaking of bread. I'll show you in a moment why that means worship. And saturating everything in prayer. That's how verse 42 ends. Prayer, that's a part of what it means to be the church. So that the gospel might spread. Now, that's not in verse 42, but it's in the larger section. Verse 41 starts with people coming to know Christ as their Savior. Verse 47 ends with people coming to know Christ as their Savior. That's the purpose of it all. Now, we're going to leave that up on the screen for a moment. I know audience participation is not your favorite thing to do, but uh, bear with me. I want us to read it aloud together. Can we do that? So how do we organizationally do church? Here's the answer. Let's read. We should be anchored to the Bible while investing in healthy spiritual relationships and placing the highest value on worship and saturating everything in prayer so that the gospel might spread. That's what we should be doing. Now let's look at those specifically. Anchored to the Bible. Uh, the first quality of a rightly focused church is that they're focused on God's word. Uh, we are to be a Bible church. 
The Bible ought to be the center, the hub of everything we do. We ought to teach it. We ought to proclaim it as a part of all of our gatherings. Every age group ministry in our church, children and youth and college and adults ought to be focused on the teaching of God's word. We should be ordered by the Bible, meaning we should get our directions Uh, We should get our focus from the Bible. Sometimes people will say, how do we know where we should stand on social issues? Homosexuality or abortion or racism or injustice. We, We should get those answers from the Bible. It's not what I think. It's not what you think. It's not how I was raised or how you were raised. It's from the Bible. We are to be anchored to the Bible. We need to make decisions based on the Bible. If there's a question around here about how we ought to handle something, which direction we ought to go, if the answer's in the Bible, that settles it. And we ought to be characterized by the Bible. Our lives should reflect how the Bible says we should live. A church rightly ordered focuses, is anchored in the Bible. Now, also, we need to have these healthy spiritual relationships. We must invest in healthy spiritual relationships. Now, when it says fellowship in verse 42, that's probably not what most people, let's say it this way, what you're thinking when you hear the word fellowship is probably not what this is talking about. It's it's interesting, the word behind the word fellowship, the original, the Greek word, is a word that if you've been in church very long, you've heard before, it's a favorite word for pastors to use, Koinonia. You have heard that word before. Now, koinonia is it's an interesting word. This is the first time the word is used in the entire Bible. It was never used in the Gospels. It was never said that the disciples had koinonia among themselves. They didn't have this fellowship. This is something, whatever this koinonia is, it is something that happened for the first time after the Holy Spirit had indwelled the Christians. Now, the word koinonia means to hold something in common. So what is different here at the end of Acts chapter two that has not happened in scripture up to this point? What could they hold in common now that they couldn't have held in common amongst the disciples in the gospels? Well, this one thing, that they were all indwelled with the Holy Spirit when, when I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwelled me. It's, he, he's inside of me. He is inside of Andre Simone. And so Andre and I have something that we share that is special. We both are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And to have this kind of fellowship means that we talk about, we fellowship over spiritual things that are highlighted by the fact that the Holy Spirit is common between us. For instance, when you have uh, koinonia, when you have this special kind of fellowship, uh, you may get with people uh, and talk about how the Holy Spirit is working in your life. That's not something a lost person can do, right? 
But you can get with people and you can say, hey, here's how the Holy Spirit is. He's here, here's how he's challenging me. Here's how he's working in my life. Here's, here's where he's directing me. Here's, here's something he's highlighting in my life that I need to work on. Uh, when you have this kind of fellowship, you can confess your sins to other people. You can tell them about your weaknesses and you can ask them to pray for you. You can tell them about your hopes and your fears and your hurts and your aspirations. And you can talk about that on a spiritual level and encourage one another. That's what it means to have koinonia. So the church, not only was, was it anchored in scripture, but they had these relationships that were different from relationships that they could have with other people who were not in the church. They had spiritual relationships. Do you have some spiritual relationships? I know a lot of people do not. Uh, I, I have uh, a group of men I meet with every Tuesday morning. It's just a small group. So it's just four of us. Uh, but we meet together and we, we talk about what we've read in, in scripture the, the previous week. But we pray for one another and we share where we have weaknesses and we talk about our fears and we talk about our hopes and we encourage one another. Uh, that, that, those are some of the most valuable relationships I have. Uh, in fact, I shared with, uh, with my guys uh, a couple of weeks ago about something I want to see change in my life. The Lord's convicted me about and it needs to be a change. And, and I shared that with them and it was uncomfortable, but it was, I had to share it with, with the guys that would pray for me and that would lift me up. And one of them texted me last night and uh, he's, he's probably here right now, but he texted me last night and said, how, how you doing with it? How's it going? And uh, well, not going so well. It wasn't last night anyway, but, uh, uh, but, but, but I was thankful that he checked up on me, that we have that accountability. And I know he's praying for me and I'm praying for him with some things that, that he's struggling with and some things that God's changing in his life. The church must be anchored in scripture, but it also must be a place where we can have spiritual relationships. Now, if you don't have those, uh, I want you to know that that's one of our priorities for this next year. Now, the best thing you can do to begin to be in a place where that can happen is to be a part of Sunday school. Now, I'm not suggesting that these spiritual fellowship, that this is necessarily going to happen in a Sunday school class. But if you're in a small group, you're going to begin to make some friends and some connections that are going to allow you to have these kind of relationships it starts in Sunday school. And you're going to hear that over and over and over the next year. As Mark leads us in our Sunday school ministry, we want everybody to be a part of a Sunday school class. And we're going to be pushing you in those classes to make those connections so that you can have healthy spiritual relationships. Well, the next thing in our uh, description of how we do church is we need to place the highest value on worship. Now, verse 42 says, the breaking of bread. That may not sound like worship to you, but it, but it is. You, you can see it in the, in the progression of the things that are listed here. Uh, before he says breaking of bread, he mentions uh, this, uh, this spiritual fellowship. And then afterwards, he mentions prayer. So he's talking about spiritual things. So the breaking of bread in the middle, it's not just talking about having a meal. Uh, and, and down in verse 46, he makes a distinction between having a meal and breaking bread. Let, let me tell you why they would call their worship breaking bread. So their worship was a lot like ours. Uh, they would sing songs, Andre. They would, um, they would read and explain scripture. They would pray and they would take the Lord's Supper. They did that every time they gathered. 
Now, why would we do it occasionally and they did it more often? That's a whole other sermon we'll get to one day. But they, they did that. That was always a part of their worship. They would take the Lord's Supper. Now, these people were mostly from a Jewish background. And those three of those four elements of worship happened in the Jewish synagogue, right? They would sing. Jews, when they worship, they sing. They would read and explain scripture and uh, they would pray. But the unique thing about Christian worship was the Lord's Supper. And so when these Jewish people would talk about worship, if they just said worship, it would sound a lot like the Jewish worship. So they would say the breaking of bread. But they were talking about worship, worship services. They were talking about praising and honoring God as, as a collective group in a corporate way as they, as they met together. We must place the highest value on worship. You know, we live in a culture where everybody's focused on what we can do. We're a task-oriented people. That's one of the things that has probably made America a great country uh, these last generations is we're the, we're the people who do stuff. And oftentimes in church, we, we, if we're not careful, we'll just focus on what we need to do. We need to share the gospel. We need to minister to the poor. We need to send missionaries. We need to renovate a building. We need to, we need to do stuff. We have a whole list of things to do. And all of those are important. We need to do all of those things. But listen, a church can get so wrapped up in what it is to do that it forgets that the most important thing is worship. We're not just here to do something. We're here to worship somebody. We're not just here to accomplish a list. We're here to honor God. That's the most important thing. And, and for a church to be rightly ordered, it has to be focused on worship. Uh, you've heard the, the admonition, especially if you're a parent, you've probably said this, uh, or if you uh, are a boss, perhaps you've said this. Uh, don't just stand there, do something. You ever heard that? Don't just stand there, do something. Now, that, that's good advice in, in a lot of contexts, but the opposite of that is good advice for a church. Don't just do something. Stand there and be in awe of God. Would, should we cut out the worship in our, in our worship service and just have more Bible teaching? Should we, should we not invest in, in, in worship so we could spend more money on projects? No, listen, our primary focus is not the things we do, but it's the one that we exalt, that we worship. You know, Jesus, uh, there was a, uh, an event in the, in the Gospels where, where two ladies, uh, sisters, uh, one was busy serving and, and one was, one was worshiping Jesus. And the one who was busy complained, I'm doing all the work. She's just sitting there. And she thought that Jesus would say, well, you're right. The other woman needs to work. And Jesus said, no, she's chosen the better thing. Sometimes we just need to worship. Um, there was a time when, when a woman took very valuable perfume and anointed Jesus' feet some of the disciples stood to the side and said, you know, we could have accomplished a lot of stuff with that money. We could have done this, and we could have done that, we could have painted this and fixed that and bought that. And, and Jesus said, no, she did the better thing because I am here to be worshiped, to be worshiped. Let's make sure 
that in all of our busyness, if we're a rightly ordered church, that we do not forget the priority, the chief priority of, of worship. And then saturating everything with prayer. Uh, Jesus said, my house should be a house of prayer. Prayer should be a, a key part of what the church does. And then finally, that the gospel might be shared. The gospel might be shared. Uh, you know, the report card we give ourselves uh, is connected to sharing the gospel. Now, certainly, we need to be anchored to the Bible. We need to honor worship. We need to have spiritual fellowship and pray. But the purpose of all of that is so that people might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is hope because of what Jesus Christ has done for every person who would surrender to him and trust in him for forgiveness. That's the message. And we ought to, we ought to, we ought to count uh, we had a cow noses. That, that's, that's what happened here. 3,000 people were saved. And then, and then people were added to their number every day. They were specific. And, and, and they didn't just use the excuse that, well, uh, who gets saved is not really up to us. And so we shouldn't be concerned about the numbers. No, if we will share the gospel, people will be saved. The Bible says the fields are white unto harvest. And they were committed. Uh, that the gospel might spread. That's how we should do church. How should our church be organized? Those five things, we should be anchored to the Bible, investing in healthy spiritual relationships, placing the highest value on worship, saturating things in prayer, that the gospel might spread. Now, once we are a rightly ordered church, then the question is, how do we relate to that? What is it that we should do? And I want to answer that question. We, we'll go quickly here. Uh, if you look at the beginning of verse 42, there are three words that I think answer that question. It says, they devoted themselves to these things. Uh, and I took time this week to really study that, that phrase and the word behind that phrase. Uh, I won't even try to pronounce the word. It's about this long. It's five syllables. Uh, but it's a rich word. And I was able to study how it had been used throughout the Bible uh, in both the Old and New Testament, the Old Testament in the Septuagint and then in the New Testament. And, 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 and here's what it means. When it says they devoted themselves, it means they did uh, three or four things. And this is how we should be connected to the church. Let me share with you those four things. Number one, how do we do church? How are we devoted? We must be connected. How do you do church? You must connect. If you look up the technical definition of this Greek word, it means to attach oneself to something. We should be attached, connected to the church. Uh, if the church is the body of Christ, we can't be casual about this. We need a connection. We need a formal, literal connection to the church. Now, we call that membership. Membership. People will ask me, this is one of those pastor questions you get all the time. Is church membership a biblical practice? Is it a biblical thing? Pastor, I don't find the word membership in the Bible. Why do we always talk about being a member of the church? Well, good question. Uh, it is biblical. Now, the word is not in the Bible, but the concept is taught in the Bible. And that's true of many things. For instance, uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Uh, that we serve one God and he's in three persons, but the concept is taught throughout the Bible. Trinity is just the word we have assigned to this biblical concept. Membership, the same way. That's the word we've assigned to the biblical concept. Now, how do we see membership in the Bible? I could give you several illustrations. First Timothy chapter five, 
The Bible talks about how the church is to bless its widows. And it talks about the widows that are on the list versus the widows who are not on the list. And when widows should be on the list and when widows should not be on the list. And it tells us that in the first church, they had a list. They had a roster. They knew who was a part of them. They had a membership role. Uh, because there's, you know, there's some distinguishing assignments for the church, members versus non-members. You, you could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and there the chapter focuses on a person who is guilty of sexual immorality. And it commands the church with respect to that person that you should confront him, and if he repents, receive him, but if he does not repent, then you need to remove him from the church. Now it says you can allow him to continue to attend, and in fact he should be encouraged to attend, but you remove him from the church. Now what could it mean that you remove somebody from the church if it doesn't mean that you physically remove them? Well, it's talking about removing them from the roster, from the membership. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, it talks about the same person. I don't know if I recorded that verse. Yes, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And it even talks about how the majority of the church voted that the person was guilty of sexual immorality. And they had removed him from the church. They had removed his membership. And in 2 Corinthians, the person had repented. And so Paul uh, encourages the church to reinstate his membership. We, we could look Acts chapter 6. We could look at other places. Membership is a biblical concept. And for us to do church the right way, listen, you need to be a member. You need to join. If you'd like to join our church, reach out to us. We have membership classes about once a month or so. Uh, we'll sit down with you one-on-one -on -one if a membership class is not convenient for you. We want you to be members of our church, and it's important that we have that kind of connection. We need to connect to the church. Now, it's not just a technical membership. It also means that you're aligned, that you have the same goals and desires, uh, that you strive to have a character, have the character of Christ formed in you. Not just simply that, uh, that you're a member on a piece of paper, but that you're seeking to live a life that's, that's godly and that is God-honoring. So we need to be connected. Number two, we need to be engaged. Uh, that means that we need to be focused full-time. We see this in Acts chapter 8, verse 13. We can't have a part-time connection to the church. Let me tell you about my connection to the mo local movie theater. Have you been to our Nacogdoches movie theater? I've lived here a couple of years. I've been there maybe four or five times. I go to the movie theater. If they have a movie, I'm interested in or that my family's interested in, and I'm just trying to be a good dad and go to one of these movies. Uh, I, if, if I'm not interested in the movie, I don't go. The question that determines whether or not I go to the theater is if I think it will benefit me, if I think I'm gonna enjoy it. Church, that can't be how we decide when we are engaged with the church. We're not consumers who are looking for the best product we must be committed full-time to be a part of the church. When it says that they were devoted, they devoted themselves to these things, that meant that they were plugged in in every way that they could be plugged in. Number three, we must invest in the church. What does it mean to be devoted? 
it means to invest. Um, the, the people in the first church didn't just consume uh, the teaching, the singing, uh, the, uh, the services, but they were invested in them. They, they did those services. They looked for a way to serve. They looked for a way to make an impact. They set down roots and they did those things. And we need to be invested in the church. And then the final word is persist. If we're going to be rightly related to the church, we have to persist. In, in, in every instance of this word being used in the Bible, Old and New Testament, there's always the idea of persistence, of sticking with it when there are obstacles. In fact, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 20, uh, the word is translated courage. Uh, the apostle, uh, I'm sorry, Moses tells the uh, these spies who are going into the promised land, I want you to go and I want you to spy out the whole land and I want you to bring back some produce. And no matter what kind of obstacles you face, I want you to have courage and I want you to get the job done. When it says that they devoted themselves, it is saying that they stuck with it. They stuck with it. You know, when people drop out of a church and you ask them about it, you hear things like this. Well, I got my feelings hurt by somebody or someone didn't meet my expectations, or too many, there were too many people there who were living in sin, or I didn't like the song, or the sermon, or the program, or the food, or the schedule, or the temperature, uh, long list of things you hear. But listen, those kind of things are gonna happen in every church in America. What, what we've gotta understand is that to be rightly connected to the church means that we persist, that we have a devotion that overcomes obstacles. You know, there are a lot of different ways to measure your spiritual maturity. One of the ways is to see how you react when there's an obstacle, when somebody hurts your feelings. How are you gonna react? That's gonna say something about your spiritual maturity. And when we have an obstacle in a church, that is a test of how mature we are spiritually. There are a lot of ways to measure spiritual maturity. Let me give you one of those ways, and I'll give you a one, two, three, uh, and describe biblically spiritual maturity this way. Uh, number one is someone who recognizes the sins and the shortcomings of other people. They're really good at saying, look at that guy, he's sinning. Look at that lady, how she's doing. Look at that, it didn't work the way uh, they thought it would work. Look at that, there's a shortcoming. Look at that, there's a problem. Now, uh, spiritual maturity level one is really the place of spiritual no maturity, right? But a lot of people think they're spiritually mature because they can point out sins and problems in the lives of others. And they think, look at me, I can see all of those problems out there. I'm mature. No, that is a sign of spiritual no maturity. That's level one. Now let's go to level two. Level two is when you're more cognizant, not of other people's sins and shortcomings, but of your own. And if you've gone from one to two, you know what this is like. When you, we, we, you know other people's sin, but you're more upset about your own sins. You're ups, more upset about your own shortcomings. You're more disturbed about you than you are disturbed about the other guy. You're more disturbed about your service than you are disturbed by her service. It, it, it's why the apostle Paul could say, I am the chief of sinners. That didn't mean that Paul was literally doing all kinds of things that other people weren't doing. But no, Paul had the maturity to recognize his own sins first. His own sins first. That's level two. Now let me tell you what level three is. Level three is when you recognize 
that though we're all imperfect vessels, that God can be glorified in that. That I'm not perfect and you're not perfect and I sin and she sins and he sins, but the wonder of God and his grace is that in our sinfulness and in our weakness, Christ can be shown to be strong. That, that God can t- work through a bunch of imperfect people and we can call it the church and it can have a lot of problems that you can point to and a lot of people not doing what you think they ought to do and it can have you, you know, the chief of sinners and God can still take all that mess and he can do something wonderful. That's, that's level three. And so in order for us to be rightly connected to the church, we have to persist we have to persist. You know, the church is God's plan. It's not a Baptist thing. It's not an American thing. It's God's plan. It's God's plan to reach the world. Uh, it's God's plan to bless your marriage. It's not just through reading the Bible and praying and being all by yourself. It's through the church. It's God's plan to, 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 to help you raise godly children. It's God's plan to bring you fulfillment. It's God's plan to give you emotional health. It's how God wants to proclaim the gospel, and it's how God wants to glorify himself. Let us have a church. Let us continue to have a church that's rightly ordered by Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And let us be people who are rightly devoted uh, to the body of Christ and the local church that he's given to us. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, let me pray. Father in heaven, in a lot of things we could talk about that'd be more exciting, maybe more interesting, uh, more flashy uh, than to just talk about the church. But I've just been reminded this week that the church is the key to everything. It is the body of Christ that everything, almost everything you want to do in me, in this community, in my family, you're wanting to do it through your church. So Father, help us to be the church that we need to be. And help us to be rightly connected with that church. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.